Why, hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. And if this is your first time tuning into the show, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, although today I'm in Connecticut and uh, I've written some books and I've been a professor of philosophy and I'm actually on the board of the Academy of Philosophy and Letters and that will be relevant in a minute or two and you'll see why I bring that up. But enough about me. What we're going to do is we're going to go around the horn. We're going to have Tom and Glenn introduce themselves and then we have a special guest, a friend of mine uh, who's come on the show and we'll let him introduce himself and then get into the topic of the day. So, Tom. Tom Price. I'm also in Connecticut, and it looks like I have the sun on my side. Uh, that's why you don't see it on Chris. <laughs> I'm being illumined by it. Um, I teach uh, systematic theology, philosophy, Christian thought, and ethics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. Great. Glenn. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor uh, a refugee from Connecticut, uh, currently in South Bend, Indiana. I, uh, I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries. Great. Well, today we are uh, privileged and glad to have a friend of mine on the show, Luke, who is in God's country, Western Pennsylvania, and uh, he's going to talk about uh, some things that he's involved with. But uh, rather than, you know, steal your thunder, Luke, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself and we can get rolling here. All right. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. My name is Luke Sheehan. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. God's country, Western Pennsylvania, <laughs> and I'm a non-resident scholar at the Program for Research on Religion and Urban Civil Society at the University of Pennsylvania. Good stuff. Now, uh, give us a little bit of uh, background on your on your theological and church affiliations, Luke, because I think it'd be good for some of our folks to, to know where you're coming from. Yeah, so uh, I am a uh, theologically um, reformed um, uh, been a Presbyterian for uh, about 15 years now. I was raised I'm a non-denominational evangelical, and I moved to Philadelphia to take a job, and I started attending 10th Presbyterian Church, and uh, uh, it was uh, Phil Riken was the senior minister there at the time, and so I kind of was uh, brought into the Reformed fold uh, through my experiences there, and uh, I've uh, been in the uh, Reformed fold ever since. Great stuff. Well, it's great to have you on the show, and you know, the uh, the uh, statement I made about uh, being a member of the board uh, at the Academy of Philosophy and Letters is relevant because you are the president of the uh, board uh, for the Academy of Philosophy and Letters. Uh, folks may be wondering, what in the world is that? What is APL? Can you give us a little synopsis? Yeah, so the Academy of Philosophy and Letters is a uh, organization of uh, – of policy people and uh, academics and kind of uh, thoughtful people, uh, uh, some of which could be uh, termed uh, public intellectuals, who are interested in the relationship between politics and culture. And uh, the organization's been around for uh, somewhere around 15 years. And it, uh, it started uh, back in the early 2000s um, as a group of cultural conservatives of you know, various sorts from, from the think tank world and the academic world who are concerned with the direction of uh, conservatism um, kind of at around the Iraq war and Afghanistan. And so a number of, uh, of uh, traditionalist conservatives who are concerned with um, what might be uh, uncharitably called uh, the warmongering. In the, uh, <laughs> you, mean, you mean the yeah, neocons? Uh, <laughs> yes, the neocons. So uh, they were concerned that, uh, that it was uh, going to be ultimately destructive um, in terms of the um, successes of those wars uh, for the people that, uh, that would be involved with them on the other end, um, as well as at home. Um, so uh, conservatism has had a long... Uh, and traditionalist conservatism has a long concern with war. Um, so uh, if you read traditionalist conservatives like Robert Nisbet or Russell Kirk, uh, they're very concerned with the cultural ramifications of a country that is at war. Now, sometimes war is necessary, but it always has devastating consequences for the country that goes to war. Not just the country that's invaded, but the country that has to mobilize in wartime. Uh, there's an, kind of an enormous, it takes a sledgehammer to the social realm. And this goes all the way back. Uh, uh, Robert Nisbet, uh, the great 20th century American sociologist, was 
uh, incredibly critical of virtually every president since Woodrow Wilson um, for the the war state. He calls it the war uh, welfare state. Um, so you can't have a war state without also having uh, kind of massive social programs that mobilize the country. Um, so he uh, sees Wilson's war state during World War One as the first totalitarian state. Uh, he means by that is not uh, totalitarian in kind of the thorough sense of contemporary China, but in the sense that. Uh, the federal government did things that it had never done before to make uh, uh, American citizens uh, thoroughly American and behind the war effort. So you get uh, suppression of German Im- immigrants, uh, suppression of um, the, the teaching of German languages. I mean, a funny family story is my uh, my great grandmother was German and uh, she she knew German and her kids would hear her talk on the phone in German, uh, but she would have been you know a little girl growing up during World War. One and she lied. Uh, uh, when people would ask if she knew German, she said she forgot it. And it was, it was a lie she talked on the phone to her family in German. But did not want to be seen as a as a German uh, right. during that time. Right, right. That's a really I think important information that I think most folks who maybe are. You know, seeing most folks who see themselves as conservatives would would not even know uh, was the case uh, with regard to traditionalist conservatism. And this brings up something that would be worth talking about a little later on the show, and that's maybe the varieties of conservatism or what go by the name conservative and uh, why traditionalist conservatism uh, needs to be, uh, I guess, uh, promoted and, 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 and kind of recovered uh, and rediscovered and so forth. Um, now – uh, you're also the new editor of the University Bookman, and you mentioned yes. someone uh, in the course of your your uh, comments a minute ago that is relevant in this regard. So talk about the University Bookman a little bit. Yeah, so the University Bookman was founded in 1960 uh, by Russell Kirk. Uh, and so Russell Kirk was uh, he's seen as like the, the godfather of American conservatism. So he uh, gained fame in 1953 when as a uh, relatively young man, he was 35, he published his doctoral dissertation at the University of St. Andrews um, titled The Conservative Mind. And so what he did is he said that there is a conservative tradition in America. Um, uh, and uh, at the time, uh, it was thought that there wasn't. Uh, so America was thoroughly a locking liberal country. We'd never had anything like a conservative tradition. Um, we just, we were a new country. We weren't like Europe. Uh, we were just thoroughly liberal. There was nothing else. And so he wrote this book called The Conservative Mind. He said, that isn't true. There's been a strain of conservative thought going all the way back to the founding. Um, and so there were our founding fathers, uh, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, who were not, uh, they were not locking liberals. Uh, they had a very dim view. They were more, you know, at best, humans. They had a very dim view of human nature, um, and they they saw government power not as about the liberation of the individual, uh, but as about ways in which we could constrain the passions of individuals. Um, you can do this in various ways. Well, you know, you have to, of course, constrain government, but you don't do so because uh, government can suppress individuals. You do so because government is run by individuals, and uh, those individuals are fallen too. So you somehow have to... Uh, Uh, have a government that's empowered in such a way it can constrain individual passions, but also uh, structured in such a way it restrains itself because, of course, it's uh, run by individuals who are themselves fallen. So whatever the um, actual uh, religious views of uh, Adams and Hamilton, they had a very Christian anthropology, and they believed in the fallenness of man, even if it wasn't a a literal fallenness. It was a it was certainly empirically true that human beings were fallen. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And wasn't it Chesterton who said that, uh, you know, uh, the fall or original sin is the only Christian doctrine that can yes. be empirically verified? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, so Kirk said this, this strain has been there from the beginning and it's run through and he kind of goes through a bunch of thinkers. Um, he sees Burke as the – he looks at American as well as English thinkers. as Burke is kind of the founding father. Um, so right after the uh, – uh, right as the uh, – French Revolution happens and kind of the modern world comes into being uh, as we know it. Um, There were uh, conservative thinkers who were concerned about the destruction of the social order, uh, that this new type of democratic power was bringing to bear. Um, They were concerned about um, changes in political uh, structures uh, that could have deleterious effects upon family and religion. Um, They were concerned about rationalism. Uh, They thought that uh, uh, human reason was too shallow to really grasp um, fully truth. You had to depend upon um, aesthetics and tradition to really understand uh, the world um, in important ways. And that this tradition runs all the way through uh, American history. So we've always had these thinkers around. We just haven't quite recognized them. 
It'd be um, great. Makes, it'd be great to have a show sometime maybe on Burke because he's an interesting oh, yeah. figure in the sense that there are things about him that maybe some folks wouldn't think could be sort of uh, reconciled in a single person. You know, in, oh, yeah. in Boston, for example, on, on Boston Common, there's a statue of Edmund Burke. You know, among all of the statues that you have there, there's one for Burke. Yeah. Yeah, is there, there's one in uh, D.C. as well. Oh, wow. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you, wanted, you wanted to say something, Glenn? Um, yeah. The the thing that is a lot of people don't really understand in America is the impact of the French Revolution. Right. You know, we have a long tradition of political thought in the West, a lot of it anchored in Christianity. And in a very real way, that whole project gets derailed by the French Revolution. And everything that happens after that is either for the revolution or against the revolution. That's the, you know, that becomes the entire tenor of uh, a political, uh, political theorizing and, and discourse. Right. You know, so your your liberals are people who generally supported the goals of the revolution. Your conservatives said, wait a minute, society is way too complicated to fit into your nice, neat little box. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This this, yeah, this is a nice segue into some other things that we, we want to get to with regard to like classical liberalism and so forth. But before we do, let's spend a little more time on the university bookman. So if somebody wanted to check out the university bookman, uh, what should they expect when they when they find it, what what is it for? Good, yeah. So uh, Kirk founded it in 1960. So uh, you know, shortly after he kind of uh, kind of uh, came into kind of his meteoric rise uh, with the conservative mind. So it was it was I think the New York Times Review of Books that gave a whole issue to it. It was, it was just a huge kind of phenomenon. Um, so he kind of was catapulted, you know, in his 30s to the kind of national fame uh, as a thinker, and uh, he founded the University Bookman uh, in 1960 to have a, uh, a forum for engagement with humane literature and humane books. Um, and so the Bookman's kept that up for 60 years. Um, so heavy emphasis upon uh, literature and literary criticism and, and kind of the humane studies. Humanities in the, the original sense of the term, uh, not the humanities as you'll necessarily find them today, but uh, right. uh, the original humanities, where you're thinking about um, the larger questions and uh, questions of culture and uh, truth and goodness and beauty um, and exploring those questions there. So the uh, book, uh, the bookman's mostly book reviews, not entirely, but mostly book reviews and humane uh, essays, you would say, um, exploring kind of essential questions. Uh, Kirk was fond of the term, rather vague, admittedly, of the permanent things. He was about preserving the permanent things. And he was not keen on uh, listing them off. So he was not a French revolutionary. Listing <laughs> 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 what the permanent things were. And, um, Kirk saw that, that uh, society and, and reality was too complex for that. Um, but we could study these things and, and delve into them. Um, so um, the Bookman has for you know six decades now been um, – been a kind of masterfully um, uh, uh, run by uh, Kirk, uh, edited it for decades, um, and then Jeff Nelson, his son-in-law, edited it, and then uh, Gerald Rossello, um, who just passed away last year, um, did a very good job um, in uh, shepherding it uh, through. And so I, I hope to, uh, to uh, live up to their legacy uh, yeah, in great. terms of that mission alive. Yeah, well, congratulations, by the way. Uh, Thank you. you know, so you're the fourth editor. Yeah, as far as I understand, yeah, there's uh, been been just a handful of editors, so it's been a uh, kind of one of those places that uh, as a rarity, it's kept around. It's uh, its editors have kind of stood for a long time. Now, am I correct in uh, in uh, believing that it's still uh, in physical print, or is it just an online thing? With, with... It's just online today. Yes. Okay. okay. So, where would they go to find it? Yeah, so uh, the Kirk Center um, uh, has that on its website. Um, so uh, you can Google the University Bookman. It's the first link that comes up. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's there, um, and it's um, it's uh, I would say it uh, it punches above its weight in terms of keeping alive kind of a, a real cultural conservatism and uh, thinking deeply on uh, on the humanities and um, kind of the tradition of humane letters alive that, that Kirk was really central to. I think uh, uh, he's written some great books, but I think he really shines in his essays mm -hmm. um, where he tackles um, uh, these, uh, he's just drawing from his, he was a bit of a, uh, a polymath. Um, <laughs> yes, there we go. And his, uh, he, uh, he, uh, you know, had read Mark Twain and, and uh, Hugo um, 
Victor Hugo, you know, by the age of 10, he had kind of worked through a lot of the great literature. And so he was drawing from all of that in his essays and in his works. Um, and it's really just, he was, he was also had a photographic memory. He was, uh, I'm a little jealous. Uh, so he, you know, it was, one of the, it was like C.S. Lewis where, right. you know, somebody could pull a book off a shelf and flip it open and read the first half of a paragraph and he'd, complete that complete it. Yeah. yeah. They, they are very, people with photographic memories are very scary. I, I, when I defended my doctoral dissertation at Oxford, Paul Fittis, one of the professors of theology was like that. And he asked me a question that I had to go look for the quote in my own work and the page, he knew the page number and he quoted to me my whole my whole section. I said, this, this is just <laughs> completely unfair. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So just just uh, over the last uh, 10 minutes or so, uh, you have uh, addressed, uh, you know, a theme that, you know, Tom and Glenn and I are, are familiar with, but perhaps our listeners are not familiar with. For a lot of folks, uh, you know, who uh, watch Fox News or maybe attend an evangelical church that's theologically conservative, when they use the, ter- the word conservative, they think it f- refers to just a, a, a single thing. Uh, but uh, in reality, uh, within sort of particularly p- political thinking, political philosophy, there are different stripes uh, of uh, conservatism, perhaps, perhaps there really is only one, and all the others are phony. <laughs> but I'm giving away my thought. But but maybe you can talk a little bit about that, Luke. Yeah. So we generally think of the conservative movement as kind of having three strains, and and the reason we kind of we, we talk of them together is they ended up uh, as a practical matter being uh, allies in the post-war American landscape. So. Uh, World War II happens, um, and you have uh, an intellectual kind of uh, renaissance or efflorescence. So on the left and the right, so you get the the new left has uh, kind of a lot of interesting thinkers who come in, um, and uh, and the right does as well. So Russell Kirk, of course, is among the foremost. Um, Bill Buckley is a young man at this time. He publishes God and Man at Yale in 1951. Robert Nisbet publishes The Quest for Community in 1953. Uh, Kirk publishes The Conservative Mind in 1953. Um, you have uh, Whitaker Chambers published Witness in 1950, right around there. Um, Peter Virick publishes a book on conservatism in 1949. And there's just these thinkers who are thinking about um, what it means to preserve uh, the constitutional order and Western society in light of the um, uh, the great turmoil of that half of the 20th century. Um, so you have two massively devastating world wars. Uh, you have the rise of totalitarian ideology, um, which uh, was, uh, you know, some people saw it as uh, this was a new thing. I think it was, uh, oh, who was it who uh, said that, uh, you know, if it, we have that traditional understanding of political order, of, you know, aristocracy, monarchy, uh, democracy. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's got six types, rule by the one, rule by the few, rule by the menu, and then rule by the one for the good of all, or by the good of one, rule by the few for the good of all, or by the good of the few, and rule by the many uh, for the good of all, or, or by the majority. Um, so kind of six types. And then you have in the 20th century, rule by ideology. Uh, so the first time you have communism, Nazism, like what are what is this? Um, where you have um, a rule by an ideology in a way that, um, you know, some argue we hadn't seen before. Um, and they're massively destructive. Um, so, uh, you know, have, you know, yeah, tens yeah. of millions of people butchered by their own governments. I mean, it's, it's an astounding uh, facts of the 20th century that this happens. And in the middle of the 20th century, there are thinkers trying to come to grips with what it's going to take for Western liberal democracies to not march down that road. Right, right. Um, now, now, one of the, I think it's worth noting at this point that uh, there are a lot of folks out there that uh, I know use ideology as a kind of synonym for philosophy. Uh, but that's not the case. Uh, we've always had philosophy, but ideologies are are, are something that's a more recent phenomenon. Uh, can you maybe get into that a little bit? Yeah, so Kirk was very uh, adamant that conservatism was not an ideology. Uh, and the reason he said that, he said ideologies are uh, political creeds. Uh, yeah. The French Revolution had its uh, list of things it believed, and uh, and uh, you're, you're uh, shot or not shot based upon how how well you can uh, pay fealty to a set of principles. Um, and so, conservatism isn't like that. It's not a set of principles per se. Now, there are Kirk had his list of canons of conservatism, but they're um, they're a little more. Um, 
I put it imprecise, you might say. Um, he, so, uh, and, and this makes it a little tough to actually define conservatism. So some people say, well, it's more of a, uh, a kind of a personal inclination. Are you the type of person who's more cautious kind of by nature? Well, that makes you a conservative. Uh, uh, and I think that's uh, kind of a little bit of an oversimplification. But uh, what Kirk was getting at in rejecting the term ideology was that uh, conservatism isn't just a list of principles that we're, that we're all devoted to um, in the way we might be devoted to uh, a creed. Well, even if you understand, you know, Christianity is, we have our creeds, of course, but um, creeds are, will recognize a, a second order reality. They are helping to get us to the person of Christ. And we want to make sure we don't forget uh, really important things about who Christ is. And we put them in creeds um, so that we can remember them and keep them at the forefront of our minds. But we remember that um, the creed is the um, the way of getting to the historic reality of uh, the incarnate Christ. Um, and ideology uh, has its creeds, but the um, and it sees it as, it's kind of a, it's a, a better way to talk about it is, is a faux creed. Um, so it's a, a list of principles that's getting to a false reality. Um, so uh, the French Revolution had its list of principles, uh, and but they were about, you know, radical equality that, um, that, that didn't recognize the actual um, depth of, of uh, human beings that, and our, our the reality of our equality before God, because of course it rejected God. So he didn't get to have that type of equality. You had some sort of fall equality that didn't actually exist. Um, so you had to, you know, um, it's why kind of aftermath of the French revolution leads to all these um, utterly destructive revolutions around the world, like the Cambodian um, uh, revolution, where you, uh, you know, you kill people who wear glasses. Uh, Cause you've yeah. got to make everyone the same. Um, right. So, you know, people are highly, higher educated. You got to kill them. <laughs> your glasses, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, you got to kill people with glasses. You got to kill people with more education. Um, you got to kill people who um, uh, had parents who were uh, better, more well-off than other people's parents. And right. um, cause you're trying to get back to an equality that uh, that's impossible. I mean, we all come from, yeah, different so, backgrounds, and you recognize that. So, so an ideology is kind of a set of ideas that are imposed upon a reality that doesn't presumably have any sort of inner structure of its own. Uh, there's no right. real out there to encounter and know. Uh, instead, there's something to to create that is just a, sort of an abstraction, uh, kind of a cookie cutter that we impress upon the world. And that right. is not uh, philosophy, nor is it, as you noted, uh, Christianity classically understood. Although I, I have come across people for whom uh, Christianity does kind of work like an ideology. They really don't think of it as being a revelation of something that was real before that came into their heads. <laughs> it's more <laughs> or less right. something that they have to impose on reality that is just sort of like out there uh, and uh consequently has to be shaped by Christians. So anyway, that, that's a whole, maybe that's another show we can have you back for. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Right. So, so now, uh, so we've talked a little bit about ideology uh, and conservatism as it was understood by, you know, Kirk and, and uh, you know, Buckley and so forth. Um, you know, let's think about what these other sort of uh, understandings are that, uh, traditionalist conservatism uh, is uh, different than? Yeah, so uh, it's different from another strain is classical liberalism. So uh, classical liberalism um, is kind of born in the 19th century or, you know, you could earlier, you could link, link it to Locke, of course, um, late uh, six, uh, 17th century. Uh, but the idea was there's a, 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 it's a heavy emphasis upon individualism and individual rights. Uh, so classical liberals um, saw individuals as kind of the center of society, um, and you wanted constraints upon government power, uh, at least to a certain extent, uh, to make sure the individual was free. And if you could free the individual um, and keep the individual free, you would kind of see a lot of, um, uh, kind of the individual had kind of an innate goodness um, that could be kind of unleashed. Um, now, there's a tension between traditionalist conservatives and classical liberals, and you probably uh, know where I'm going with this, is that uh, classical liberals also believe that um, that traditional social groups are one of the worst offenders in terms of suppressing individual talents and kind of the individual goodness. Um, so um, there's been a tension uh, historically between classical liberals and traditionalist conservatives and uh, traditionalist conservatives see, you know, for whatever flaws that might exist in, in uh, religious institutions and in the family and local communities and all of that, there are also the means whereby individual talent is cultivated um, and, uh, and finds expression. So you really can't uh, talk about 
individuals. And, and Robert Nisbet was very, very keen on this point. He said the eras we see is, is, um, is kind of uh, uh, producing the most extraordinary individuals are not eras of individualism. They're eras of very strong, small social groups. Um, so usually you see the family is very, very strong. Um, and you'll, uh, so when you have, uh, you know, a Shakespeare arise or a Plato arise, um, you see all these small groups. Um, so, you know, what's Plato doing? He's hanging out with Socrates and everybody else in these tiny kind of tight knit groups talking to each other. And then there's the genius comes forward. And, you know, Shakespeare is not the singular genius. He's a, a genius among geniuses. And they're talking to each other, writing, exchanging, you know, the Inklings, another one, you know, these great writers, but they weren't great writers on their own. They were in communion with each other and close friends and uh, sharpening each other. And, uh, you know, um, so, and Nesbitt always pointed out, when you see the great individuals arise, it's not because of individualism. It's because of these small, tight-knit groups that are able to hone in individuals um, and help them to sharpen them such that they actually um, are a strong uh, individual as we understand them. Uh, but, uh, it's not because of individualism that that happens. Yeah, this is an, a paradox that I've just observed in the course of my ministry. Some of the most uh, interesting and quirky people I've known have grown up in what would be considered by classical liberals as well as progressives, oppressive environments. You know, they were, they were you know, uh, in these very tight-knit communities where there was a lot of pressure that was sort of placed upon them to conform to certain moral standards. Uh, they they became you know who they were because of those environments, um, and were uh, you know believers most of the time in the standards that, that they had been encouraged to to uh, adopt that had been formed that had formed them. But they were also remarkably uh, idiosyncratic. I mean, they're some of the weirdest and funniest people I've ever known. On, <laughs> on the other hand, I lived in Cambridge in Central Square for a decade. And uh, surrounded by people who celebrated diversity in every other word, <laughs> but they were remarkably hom- homogenous. You know, yep. you get past, you, right. you scratch the surface, and you discover the exact same outlook uh, in every one of them. They were they weren't as individualist uh, individualistic as they like to present them. In fact, is, is you, you remember that Far Side uh, cartoon where you've got the penguins, a sea of penguins, and there's this one penguin who's in the middle singing "I Gotta Be Me." <laughs> that's kind of the, that's kind of what it's like in progressivism. They, they all dress the same, look the same, think the same, and then claim to be the you know unprecedented and, and uh, you know sui generis, whatever. But anyway, so so we have the classical liberals. So we have traditionalist conservatism. We have classical liberalism. Is that exhausted, or are there other options? Yeah. So uh, the kind of the other major option uh, is usually uh, titled uh, neoconservatism. So uh, neo, uh, because it, they were uh, generally speaking um, kind of latecomers to the conservative movement. So uh, some of the leading lights um, of this, we were kind of started off as, as uh, New Deal Democrats. And then uh, they were, as they describe it, uh, mugged by reality. So Irving Kristol, uh, Bill Kristol kind of fitted this. And uh, uh, you know, supported the welfare state, but it turns out, uh, you know, there were some downsides to the great society. Um, and so uh, they didn't um, abandon um, their kind of big government orientation, but they did want to see uh, reform of the welfare state. Um, and they tended to be more hawkish on foreign policy. And this is where they, when they start entering the Republican Party, uh, the Republican Party becomes more hawkish um, and uh, kind of culminating in in the early 2000s in the Bush administration. Um, so, uh, and and uh, the al- alliance between traditionalist conservatives, uh, neoconservatives, and classical liberals um, happens because of the uh, in the post war world you have the Cold War, and uh, all three of those groups are not <laughs> do not like communism, and uh, and all three of those groups don't like the left, um, either the old left or the new left in America. So all three of those groups kind of had common enemies uh, domestically and uh, abroad, and so they made kind of common cause, and it, it made a, a great deal of sense uh, for a good half century or so. Um, that they worked together, they founded institutions together. Um, think of all the major think tanks in DC. That a lot of times they were those three groups were all all involved um, into a certain uh, greater or lesser extent. And um, but it starts at you know Soviet Union falls, um, and then you start to kind of see the crack up. Um, uh, you see the, right. the differences at a fundamental level uh, philosophically that makes it difficult to keep that those three groups together. Um, and and I'm painting with a broad brush. There's yeah. of course internal sectarian disputes. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I could you know, in my in my mind, uh, we're actually in kind of uh, another term for traditionalist conservatism is paleoconservatism. Sometimes that's the term that's used. Uh, we're kind of in the traditionalist conservative moment right now, 
So what I mean by that is uh, classical liberals kind of had their heyday. Then the neocons had their day. And now uh, we see a whole sort of, uh, I think, uh, coming onto the main, you know, sort of to the forefront of the conservative world or sort of on stage, people who have more sort of uh, in common with what we've been talking about with regard to traditionalist conservatism. Um, Some of your own writing, you know, you know, I think would be uh, traditionalist in its in its outlook. Um, can you give some some input on some of the things I've just said, and maybe also talk a little bit about your your recent book? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, neoconservatism um, has fallen out of favor. So it had its heyday during the Bush administration. Um, a lot of the uh, the kind of leading uh, lights uh, during that time were described as neoconservative, and often describe themselves that way. And and with the um, the expenses of the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan wars, um, and the, the way in which they uh, were Tur- not turns uh, out that the traditionalist traditionalist conservatives were right. <laughs> yes. The wars were a bad idea. <laughs> yes. So um, there was a uh, yeah. There's some eggs on some faces as uh, as that has uh, progressed, um, and uh, so they fell out of kind of uh, intellectual favor, and and they slowly lost. You know, a number of people self-described neoconservatives kind of. Uh, Changed their tune. I mean, they said, "I, I was wrong. I, I, I didn't see the right here." Uh, and uh, and so, interestingly enough, even in our cultural moments of wokeism, um, kind of a traditionalist conservatism that says, "You know, we kind of need our small associations." It turns out the family, uh, the family does matter. It turns out local community, you know, those school boards, those things matter. Um, and they and it, it and so we see this, uh, you know, even among you know Democrats or, you know. Hey, wait a second! I want to run my school board, and not have uh, not have this other uh, these yeah. crazy people on it. Yeah, um, are kind of seeing the light of the localism, uh, the traditionalism um, that uh, the traditional conservatives have been uh, kind of championing all along. Right now, now when it comes to associations, okay, we're, we're right in your wheelhouse, Luke. Tell That's us right. about tell us about your book. Yeah, so I published a book uh, called "Why Associations Matter" in 2020. So it's a uh, it's a it's a new one. Uh, it's an academic book, uh, but uh, very reasonably priced on Amazon. <laughs> so. uh, and I, I in that book I argue that the Supreme Court um, has gotten freedom of association wrong. So the Supreme Court has uh, noticed that freedom of association is described as a First Amendment right. Um, but if you uh, uh, Google search real quick and uh, look up the uh, the First Amendment, uh, it doesn't say freedom of association there. Now, the way the court has been able to describe this this right that doesn't appear in the First Amendment, um, I'll show, tell you why it's there in a moment. But uh, what the court said is we have the speech clause and the freedom of speech. And um, in order to uh, have freedom of speech um, in its full sense, we need to be able to associate with others who are of like mind. Um, so uh, the, the court calls this expressive association. You have the right of expressive association. That means you can form your group and you can join it and you can uh, exclude people from it who will somehow um, uh, dampen your ability to express your views. Uh, now, I argue that that's a, an impoverished understanding of what associations are. So associations are not primarily about expressing your views, although we do do that uh, through them, of course. Um, but they're primarily about uh, forming um, uh, functional relationships. Um, but what I mean by that, I'm drawing this language from Robert Nisbet, um, is we form our groups uh, for some function. Um, some uh, are uh, very exalted functions, um, such as worshiping God. Um, so that's a function of our religious organizations is to uh, organize the proper worshiping of God and to reconcile man to God. Uh, that's its function. Um, and uh, the function of a soccer club is to play soccer. Uh, it's to get people together so they can play soccer. Um, and so some, sometimes our associations are very high and exalted and sometimes they're, uh, they're very banal. Uh, nonetheless, they all kind of to, from the top to the bottom are very important. And some of our associations are expressive. We, we go through them so that we can express our views. Um, so, um, you know, political groups, um, think of a, a, a group that, um, advocates for, um, oh, uh, expanding the welfare state or for uh, property rights or for um, the pro-life cause. These are expressive associations, and uh, that's perfectly fine. But of course, lots of associations that we have don't fit into that those categories, I mean, including, for example, religious organizations. Uh, they're not uh, generally speaking expressive. That's just not what they're about. They're about uh, meeting to uh, have a Bible study. Um, think of a, a campus group. 
In fact, the Supreme Court has a case on point, uh, Christian Legal Society versus Martinez in 2010. And this is where you really see that the court over the, over the, over the 20th century describing freedom of association as freedom of expressive association really falls apart. So in, in this case, in 2010, the court said uh, that this religious student group at Hastings Law School, which is a public law school in California, um, uh, can be forced by its public university uh, to admit all comers into its group. So it can't tell people, they can't join if they're not, you know, uh, Christians, uh, which is uh, laughable on its face right, right. Uh, to most people. Uh, but uh, the reason the court got there is it said, well, think about it. All those students who are Christians in Christian legal society can still express their views. No, no one's going to stop. There's no censorship going on. All we're saying is you have to let in people who disagree with you. Um, right. That's not the purpose of the group is not primarily expressing your views on Christianity. It's to fellowship with other Christians right. who agree with you. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, you, 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 when we were talking about, you know, what we were going to discuss in the course of the show, you mentioned uh, in passing, almost in an offhanded way, that uh, freedom of association is a kind of a traditionalist conservative sort of uh, thing by definition. Um, and I think we're getting at that right now in the sense that what this implies is that society is something different from government and that society exists, uh, you know, uh, prior to government uh, sort of oversight and intervention. You know, a, a kind of association which comes to mind uh, along these lines is uh, the Union Club in Boston, which was traditionally a men's club, right, until someone took them to court and, uh, you know, sued to join. And it was a woman, of course. And because she saw that this was like a, a club that was intended to keep, uh, you know, moneyed men, you know, uh, you know, kind of uh, together and working for their, you know, interests. When, when that was not the expressed, you know, intent of the club at all. The expressed intent of the club was to provide a place for men. Uh, to who were gentlemen, which implies a certain social standing, <laughs> to, to get together and enjoy each other's company and do things together. Now, there's a sense in which there's obviously going to be some tangential, uh, you know, sort of uh, outcomes from that, uh, you know, uh, institution being, uh, you know, put in place. But the but the the intent was not to promote. Uh, men that the the intent was not to promote business interests. The intent was to provide a place for men to enjoy each other's company as men. And now that's right. been undermined. Right. Right. Yeah. So this is uh, you know, this is the problem with the court's trajectory. Is it undermines um, the actual associational nature of associations? Um, so it sees associations as purely instrumental, um, and not instrumental in a um, um, kind of a shallow sense, uh, or, or a shallow sense. So, uh, you know, why do you have the association? You know, for fraternity. I guess that's an instrumental view. It's instrumental in a um, a state centered way. So the court said, why can you have expressive associations? Because they're good for democracy. So how, we have a democracy. In order to you know uh, uh, have a functioning democracy, you have to have citizens who express their views to each and communicate with each other. One way we do this is through associations. So you think about how uh, I call it a. I'm not the first to call it this. It's democratic totalitarianism, right? Mm. So um, we can only speak of values and uh, associations insofar as they relate to our democratic government. And if they don't, um, well, the court won't provide uh, protection for them. So um, this has uh, happened to fraternities and sororities. Um, it, when they come up in the federal courts on freedom of association grounds, the courts will say they're not expressive. Um, it does, so, you know, they have no protections. They only have the protections that a university will choose to extend to them. Uh, they don't have anything residing in the Constitution. Um, and the way the courts generally treat it is public institutions are bound by the First Amendment um, in a way that private institutions aren't. So, of course, private colleges and universities have their own freedom of association, but public uh, institutions are bound by uh, the First Amendment. So, you got at uh, freedom of association operates as a uh, in a conservative way uh, because it preserves these relationships. It doesn't allow the intrusion of political power into these organizations and and uh, relationships. Uh, so it's uh, I think freedom of association is a uh, it's a, a the court is treated in such a shallow sense, um, but it's actually a really profound uh, value. So Robert Nisbet um, in his work on communities, he makes exactly this argument about 
uh, about communities is uh, the social realm is separate from the political realm. We tend to conflate them, uh, but they're not the same. Um, and we tend to see treat uh, the, the the political state as kind of a um, uh, a further development of the so, uh, the social realm. So you know you had the kinship groups and clans in ancient society, and over time they developed a state. They kind of developed into the state. In fact, Aristotle kind of lays this out. You have right. families, you have a group of families in the village, and then you have the, the polis, the state. Um, he's of course talking about Greek society, but that basic structure is how we often think about political uh, power. And Nisbet's uh, insight is he says that's that's not true. Uh, political states usually rise in opposition to. Uh, kinship. So think of the Roman Empire. Um, so the Roman state in its republican form is basically a, it's, it's a, and a lot of societies actually, our society actually uh, recognizes this in terms of the language we use. So uh, the Senate uh, is basically the elders, right? It's the, right. It's, it comes from, it's, um, uh, in, some, in Rome, it was uh, the group, the leaders of the, of the, of the families, of the great families um, uh, governed Rome. And then in opposition, uh, to them. Uh, so, for example, if you were a uh, Roman soldier for a long time and you returned to Rome, you went from being under your general to being under your father. You had to turn over your uh, whatever booty you had from the war. And, uh, <laughs> that was it. And uh, Augustus changes this in the Lex Julii. And um, the individual soldiers are now loyal to the, the general. Uh, Augustus himself. As you return to Rome, you keep your booty. Um, needless to say, this is popular with the soldiers. Uh, but, um, it devastates the power of the of the Roman families, um, and uh, that this kind of uh, this plays out uh, across a lot of societies, where the rise of the state is in opposition to um, the uh, uh, society. So, um, the, the establishment of the modern states uh, throughout Europe, it's um, it's the king, you know usually a king, centralizing his power against the aristocracy, against the church. Is. I mean, and of course, they're, they're very good at uh, playing, playing them off against each other. Um, sure, but the yeah. wars of religion, I forget which uh, historian described them as, they're wars of political centralization. Right. Um, they're kings seizing property and destroying the other classes. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, they're very good at like, uh, you know, converting to Catholicism. I forget, it was right. Charles V, I think he was like converted five times. And so there was a lot of uh, uh, chicanery that went on. But uh, seeing the political state as uh, Nisbet describes it as inherently revolutionary. And what he means by that is it's always about undermining the social order, taking power away from families. Yeah. Uh, changing property laws um, so that families and uh, and corporations and churches don't have power. Um, they lose their um, their uh, kind of corporate identity over and against the state. So, and many of the uh, uh, of rights that we have kind of are grounded in immunities um, of uh, of associations. Um, so, uh, there's a great book by uh, Stephen uh, Smith at the University of uh, uh, San Diego. Uh, came out in 2013. It's um, the rise and decline of uh, American religious liberty, I think. And he makes the argument that our First Amendment is actually a resuscitation of the uh, autonomy of the church. Um, so he says uh, that 11th century conflict between the church and the emperor. Um, so the church asserting itself against, so at that time, the uh, um, the kings were very fond of appointing bishops and right. priests in their own kingdoms uh, for obvious reasons. They, they didn't want uh, right. these powerful officials to be uh, not under their thumb. Um, and uh, the church pushed back against that and it ended up winning the arguments. Um, so the, uh, the the bishops will be um, well, kind of winning the arguments. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. well uh, you, you've, you've really given us a lot to talk about and think about it here, yeah. Luke. And this is really rich stuff. I want to give uh, you know Tom and Glenn a chance to kind of yeah. you know jump in here and maybe uh, you know respond and, and, and uh, give uh, some uh, some other things for you to, 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 to talk about. So Glenn, yeah, yeah uh, Anything you want to say at this point or questions? Yeah, just as a um, um, historical note, um, Scotland, the history of Scotland in the Middle Ages is the king dies. There's a civil war over who's going to be the next king. One side invites the English in. They put their candidate on the throne. That king rallies the Scots to drive the English out. <laughs> Repeat, repeat. <laughs> Rinse and repeat. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is the way Presbyterianism works in the system, the, the lairds in Scotland had always been in a tug of war with the king over power. You know, so the lairds always wanted power to devolve away from the central monarchy. The kings always wanted more power. 
The reason why Scotland adopts the Presbyterian system, which, by the way, was originated in France, the reason why they, they adopt that system is because the lairds could control the presbyteries and thereby control the church and use that as a counterbalance to the power of the king. So there's always yeah, some so kind there, of there's, agenda here. Yeah, there, 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 there's just sort of, what, what, you know, um, I, I, you know I, I'm an institutional historian. That, that, that's what I did, specifically ecclesiology. And one of the things I learned is the truth of Bismarck's comment that people who like sausage and respect the law should not watch either of them being made. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, you know, this, this, is, this is really a thing. Now, the, the other comment, though, is something, I believe it was from George Weigel. He said that when Constantine legalized Christianity, there was one principle that was essentially established, and that set the church as independent of the state. Because the church had existed for 300 years as a persecuted minority religion. It didn't depend on the state. It was independent of it. What he said that did is broke the hold of essentially the totalitarian Roman government. Because if there is one something that the government doesn't control, it opens up the door for there being other somethings. And this, in turn, becomes the foundation for civil society, you know, through the Middle Ages. Yeah, so... Just a yeah. couple yeah. of ideas yeah. that uh, related to what you were talking about. Yes, yeah. Robert Nisbet uh, uh, would agree. Yeah, but but this is a really fascinating. You know, we talk about you know we joke about sausage being made. History <laughs> is basically sausage, you could say, and and a lot of the things that we value, cherish, uh, you know, in our political order, our social order, uh, came about through sort of surprising. Uh, ways. And um, we just kind of think that these things are immediately obvious to any, you know, sort of thinking person, but they're actually matters that have uh, fascinating stories behind them. And learning about those stories actually enriches our understanding of those things. But I think also helps us appreciate God's providence, um, you know, as God is at work uh, through all of these very compromised uh, people and, and, uh, um, kind of shady movements, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So, Tom, do you have anything you wanted to ask or talk? You know, mention here? Yeah, I mean, so, I'll see if I can make a, a coherent thread here because there are a few things you've talked about at different places that I'll, <laughs> that I'll, I'll see if this will make sense. So a while back in the conversation, you were talking about the difference between sort of uh, you know, traditional conservatism and then sort of progressive, you know, leftism. In one sense, the difference between the notion of liberating the citizen um, in the way in which institutions almost are, are to function as in the service of that kind of liberation. Um, and then tied to that, see if I can hold this thread together, where the differing notions and the differing kinds of conservatism, the different anthropologies, um, you have in traditional conservatism, one in which, it, if we could use the language, the person is formed by these institutions, not just in a functional way, but I think, as you said, because they're really connected to them naturally and you know spiritually and everything else. It's where the humane becomes significant. significant significant, the, the passing on. Whereas in certain libertarian conceptions that are in, in some of these other forms, the will is almost considered, you know, very voluntarist and almost as if it generates a whole expressive world of itself. So you almost have anthropologies more amenable to progressive and leftist in some of these other kinds of so-called conservatism than they do with, with classical conservatism, which is about the human being immersed in creation and its moral and, and social orders. So I, I don't know, maybe you could flesh out some more of that or. Yeah. Yeah. No, what you said is, uh, is correct. Yes. Uh, the treatment of the individual as uh, this kind of uh, abstract being that uh, magically comes into existence, fully forms with uh, <laughs> thoughts and uh, sentiments as if, uh, you know, they, they just didn't come from anywhere. And we know, uh, you know, Nisbet has, you know, a line in, uh, in one of his books, uh, The Social Bond, and he says something like, um, you know, uh, you know, 
we, we sometimes talk about individuals as if they're these atoms, you know, yeah. literally, you know, we're in physics and we can talk about atoms, but, you know, we never find an individual out, you know, I, on the one hand, you only see individuals, right? You yeah. don't, you walk into a church, you don't see a church, you see a bunch of individuals. Yeah. On the other hand, you never see an individual without their association. You don't yeah. see them without, you know, there, there's no individual in existence that didn't have parents. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's, you know, it's, they're trying, like, they're trying. <laughs> and there's, uh, you know, there's something like, I like to point out with, uh, what we know about, um, you know, uh, 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 children's brain development, right. Is, um, you know, we know kind of very sadly, uh, from, uh, children who are, are dumped in, um, and some of the orphanages, right. yes, and in Eastern Europe, uh, yeah, is, you right. know, I've read some stories about these, and uh, and they won't take care of them, right? So, I mean, they they are, they are not hugged, uh, their diapers are changed, and they are moved along an assembly line, right. literally, right. Uh, right. you know, when they're taken care of, and so their brain doesn't develop; um, it, it can't uh, develop. Right. So, our brains are literally developed um, by our interactions with other human beings. So, you know, everyone who's listening to this and proce- uh, can process it uh, owes. Some people, right. huge right. debt of gratitude because somebody held you <laughs> for a while when you were crying uh, and you don't remember it. And that's the, the only reason that you're capable of uh, what you're capable of. And so these are personal interactions. Uh, uh, so the way we're describing individuals in some of these movements, it's just simply false. It's, yes. it's, it's not. And we and we. We knew it at the time, uh, yeah. you know. It, you know, and as uh, cognitive science has only <laughs> told us we are. I think it's uh, is it. Uh, uh, oh gosh, which is the uh, the social thinker? He has a great quip that uh, social scientists are only useful when they tell us what we already knew. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in which case who needs them? But uh, it, right, it's and that's right. exactly right. They're telling us. Uh, you know, it turns out parents are really important. You know, it turns out, you know, who knew uh, having a father in the home is really important. Yeah. <laughs> we, right. we knew conservatives were onto that a yeah. long time ago. Uh, yeah. We didn't need we didn't need to watch massive social experiments go badly and yeah. then to, to learn these things. Yeah, uh, well, which I think it brings up the question, why why this sort of like uh, higher literacy, you know, uh, why, why the stupidity? Um, you know, what, what's going on with that? Because, you know, re, you know, related to what you were just talking about, we, we know you know, mysteriously in a certain sense, but kind of obviously in another sense that, that, a that, a that a baby, uh, a newborn, uh, is, uh, in an ongoing way, biologically committed to his or her mother in, in ways that we are just now beginning to sort of document scientifically, but I think instinctively, or maybe that's not the right way to put it. Just, we just knew before, you know, a, a baby should be with her mother or her, his mother. And and if he or she is, good things happen. And what it turns out, it's actually the case. It's, you know, you know, w- we understand that within the womb, that there's a kind of uh, development process that's occurring that the mother's obviously directly connected with. But what it turns out, it, it continues after birth, uh, and it has to be the biological mother. In other words, uh, it's not enough uh, for just any, you know, caring person to come along and pick up the baby and care for the baby. It really does need to be the mother. And if that does not occur, there really are some negative consequences. Attachment issue. doesn't matter how politically incorrect. Yeah, it doesn't matter how politically incorrect it is. It's, it's a, it's, there's something biochemically that's going on. It's not even an attachment issue. It's not even in the sense that the child knows this is my mother. There's actually something physiologically that's going on that only the mother is able to help occur. And this came yeah. out in, in, in the New York Times. And, of course, all of the people on the left just, you know, flipped their lids. But it's just a fact. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's uh, you know, the, some of the research on um, uh, cells from, from babies kind of get incorporated into the mother's body, yeah. Um, yeah. which yeah. might explain why mothers know when something happens to their child. They'll know. But yeah. there might actually be like a literal biological connection yeah. across space that, yeah. that is still there even you know decades later yeah uh and it's it we're just we're just barely tapping into it but here's what the conservative would say the traditionalists would say would like we knew this from human experience yeah. right we knew this from literally hundreds of millions of mothers yeah. <laughs> we already <laughs> knew that experience <laughs> right, um, right. Justifies. yeah we didn't we, have to kind of wipe the slate clean and start over but that's what um, they always want to do that's just, what they want to do that's their understanding of freedom their understanding of freedom yeah. is total autonomy nothing yeah. is a given Everything is, you know, up to us and our choices. That's the ground of reality is, you know, autonomous choice. It's stupid, but they're willing to be stupid intentionally. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of it goes back uh, uh, to Rousseau's as uh, uh, many things do. It's, uh, you know, uh, you got to wipe the slate clean because all of our social attachments are. I see Glenn smiling. Uh, it's uh, all our social attachments are are inherently um, um, debilitating. Yeah. Um, so you know, what do we have to do with education? Primarily, it's freeing children from the prejudices of their fathers. That's right. the primary thing. Um, and, and everyone would be great if we could just get rid of our associational attachments. Um, yeah. uh, we could see crime disappear. We could see all this. <laughs> <laughs> There's no that's way. Right. Like, you know, right. What happens when somebody's unattached? They're the worst people of all. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Or, or, uh, or they're... Um, or they're self-destructive. I mean, so yeah. this is where, uh, you know, uh, many uh, traditional conservatives are religious for very obvious reasons. Uh, but Nisbet wasn't. He was an agnostic. Um, and he was heavily reliant upon Emil Durkheim, who was oh, an yeah. atheist. Right, um, right. But what they saw in Durkheim was, a, you know, an atheist. He was a radical yeah, uh, yeah. in many of his politics. But what he when he looked around him, he said, every group that loses, that, that's less socially attached yeah. is has every social pathology you can imagine, like higher suicide rates, right. higher um, crime yeah. rates. Like we need associations. Now he he had just kind of a uh, you know obviously he wasn't religious. He he had an account that uh, a religion uh, a religious person can't accept, kind of in the final analysis. Sure. But their insights over how society works. Well, this, um, this really yes, yeah. this brings up a great uh, sort of segue for something we talked about in the pre-show conversation, and that is. You know, working with people uh, in the academy, in the in the world of ideas, that we may not be on the same page with on every matter. So, so sometimes people will wonder, you know, about you know the three of us and the friendships that we have with Roman Catholics, and they'll say, oh, you know, don't you realize that they're wrong on soteriology? But it, that's like meant, it, what that implies in their mind is that we're not supposed to have friendships with them or ever agree with them about anything else ever. <laughs> but in reality, for those of us who are, you know, you know, people who've had some background in the academy, uh, just singling out Roman Catholics or of a particular kind, you know, traditionalist Roman Catholics, you know, the, the, anyone who understands, you know, Roman Catholicism knows that it's a, it's a very uh, sort of a diverse community. <laughs> but uh, the traditionalist Roman Catholics are often um, the sort of our our staunchest allies as reformed, uh, you know, sort of intellectuals when it comes to the life of the mind because of a range of things, one of them obviously being we believe, we both believe in God. (laughs) But but here you bring up the prospect that, you know, there are people who are agnostic as with regard to Nisbet or uh, even atheists like Durkheim who we can agree with on certain matters. Um, Can you reflect a little bit on what it means to be, say, a, a reformed traditionalist conservative in the academy, you know, doing your work and how it, it sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, working with other people that you don't necessarily agree with in every respect comes into play. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, kind of a, a concern with me given my uh, particular religious and, uh, philosophical commitments is, uh, you know, about the, the role aesthetically of, you know, beauty, um, uh, the role of goodness and truth, uh, all these sorts of things. Um, but Roman Catholics, I really see sometimes the, uh, the wisdom of, uh, of C.S. Lewis when he talks, I think it's a mere Christianity where he says of the three great branches of Christianity, the ones who are the most kind of devout within their, um, their tribe, uh, end up being the ones closest to each other. They're kind of closest to the center, you might say. Um, and uh, a big mistake I've seen with Protestants is they'll think liberal Catholics, are kind of reformist Catholics. They're about to be Protestant. That's how they see it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, and what you, they don't realize is, uh, you know, liberal Catholics are even more insufferable than liberal Presbyterians. Uh, liberal- <laughs> it's so true. Um, so, so uh, and, uh, and what we find is, I mean, it is true. There's some, you know, some soci- soteriological disagreements, uh, between reformed, uh, conservative reformed and uh, conservative Catholics. But, uh, you know, conservative Catholics will, uh, you know, a big one is, uh, you know, um, the meaning of the Eucharist, for example. I see a dis- disagreement. Um, but what you'll see is if you tell a traditionalist Catholic uh, that you're going to take the Eucharist and their face there turns it like to horror. But the reason is, is they actually believe 
in the body and blood of Christ. Like they think right. that a historical event 2000 years ago actually right. happens. And they think, I believe in the miracle of the mass and now, you know, the forum right. to, you know, have disagreements right. over this, but we both agree on the original event in a way that like a liberal Catholic is like, Oh, you know, it doesn't matter. That's yeah. because they don't agree in the, with the original event. Yeah, um, right. And we disagree over its meaning, but we agree with the original event. And so we, um, there's a lot of alliances that can happen. I mean, uh, Robert George, um, the, the uh, great uh, political theorist at uh, Princeton, uh, is uh, very open and warm towards evangelicals. Um, and the reason is, is he understands exactly this. Like, right. we're on the same page uh, 90% of the time. And the, ramif- the cultural ramifications of what we believe um, religiously, even if we have some religious disagreements, are virtually identical. Um, right. We want to see strong families. Uh, we want to see strong churches. Um, and we, what, you know, what Glenn mentioned earlier about... Um, the institutional separation uh, that Christianity brought where this institution, these churches, just were not part of the Roman state for centuries. Right. Um, it meant that civil society was a thing <laughs> that could that, that came into existence. And uh, uh, the pattern of freedom of association is patterned after religious liberty, um, which is the freedom of the church um, to uh, minister to people without the intrusions of, uh, of the king. Uh, or parliament, or or a congress, um, and uh, that's something we would agree on. Uh, we might disagree on which church and have some uh, definitional uh, things, but we're actually going to say almost the same thing on religious liberty. Um, we're going to say almost the exact same thing on abortion. Right, just in the headlines right now, uh, right. and so uh, in all sorts of ways, we're on the same page. Um, and it's it's kind of one of those things where um, I do not want to say these theological points are unimportant. They are. Very important. Um, but there is uh, something to be said for, uh, you know, kind of remembering the creeds uh, where, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're not the uh, they, they didn't get into the weeds on the treatises. And there was something to be important. And um, I don't want to say it's unimportant to work out the, the theological ramifications, but that it's um, focusing and reform should understand this. Focusing on the person of Christ is actually uh, this really uh, a really uniting uh uh, thing in the very best sense. It really brings us all together in the very best sense, um, mm-hmm. the right people together. Robert George certainly understands that. And he's been sure. unbelievably helpful to a ton of Protestants through his his work at the James Madison program at Princeton. So um, really getting career boosts uh, to right. a lot of uh, evangelical scholars. Um, Mark Hall is going to be there next year, the great uh, kind of religious liberty scholar at George Fox, who's an evangelical. Um, so it's really, uh, it's we would, should really see them as, Allies in all sorts of ways. Uh, Gresham Machen uh, has a passage right. in Virginian Liberalism where he says, "You know, we're on the same page with uh, with uh, Catholics and all sorts of things. It's just we can't be in communion with them. Like, but right. we we agree with a lot. We're the same religion. We just aren't the same church. Right. Uh, and so we can we can work together. And that's even more true when we think of ourselves as the same movement, uh, the same intellectual circles. Uh, so APL, tons of Catholics and right. uh, a good sampling of uh, reformed uh, reformed." Uh, uh, Protestants as well. You know, the Acton Institute um, used, I'm not sure it still has uh, had the similar makeup, but it used to be a combination of Reformed and Catholic guys. They all knew the differences and they all got along because they all recognized the differences were important. And that, that was the thing that was, that was the most interesting comment that they made to me. Yeah, well, and the same thing's true at Touchstone and the folks out at the Fellowship of St. James. But I just I just saw the other day that, uh, you know, uh, the Acton Institute is uh, behind the uh, translation and publication of Abraham Kuyper's extended, you know, sort of as his, his whole corpus into English. And so, you know, if you want to get some, you know, Kuyper, who's like uber Calvinist, I guess you could say, you know, <laughs> you, know you, you got to go to the Acton Institute, which uh, it has some Catholics involved. But that's kind of a fascinating thing, thing to think about. Anyway, um, all of this stuff is kind of great to consider, particularly related to the Academy of Philosophy and Letters, which uh, is having its uh, annual conference. Uh, we're going right. to put this, uh, we're going to publish this particular show next week so that uh, people can be aware of the conference. Now, the conference is an invitation-only kind of thing, uh, and, but it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of thing that we'd like to uh, let folks know about, uh, particularly you know, uh, folks who listen to the podcast who might have an interest in actually joining, uh, being part of the development of the of the Academy. Um, is there anything you might want to say about the Academy of Philosophy and Letters as we wrap up here, Luke, uh, to kind yeah, of encourage so, people uh, to do that? 
Yeah, so uh, we're hosting our conference uh, June 2nd through 4th in College Park, Maryland, at the College Park Marriott. Uh, so you can go to uh, philosophyandletters.org. Uh, you can register. Um, so uh, we do require a sponsor, but uh, feel free to put my name down, or uh, if I may, you can put Chris's name down as well. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, we'd like to see you there. Um, you will find um, other traditionalists, um, conservatives, um, Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, and agnostic, all, uh, all uh, traditionalist conservatives, but of various uh, theological commitments uh, come, to the, uh, uh, come to the conference. Uh, we're discussing um, uh, the idea of, uh, you might say, after disorder. Uh, so we've seen uh, a lot of disorder uh, socially and culturally in the last two, two years, and uh, we're going to be discussing some, uh, some solutions, uh, that, uh, uh, ways of understanding it and the ways of getting past it. Yeah, that's great stuff. And by the way, what you'll find, you know, at the Academy, but also in other places um, that uh, are made up of traditionalist uh, conservatives from different backgrounds is that uh, there's no self-editing going on. So the Roman Catholics will get up and and you'll know that they're Catholics (laughs) and the Reformed guys will get up and you know that they're Reformed, (laughs) that kind of thing. So uh, it's 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 kind of an ecumenical uh, ecumenism in in the best sense, where everybody actually is what they say and not trying to find the lowest common denominator. But anyway, hey, Luke, it's been great to have you on the show. It's been thank you. You know, I think we ought to have you back sometime to talk a little more about some of these that. themes, uh, at, particularly uh, the ones that we didn't get into in, in the kind of depth that it would have been good to get into. But uh, anyway, is there anything that you want to say about how people can find you and maybe find your your work and that kind of thing as we wrap up? Oh, yeah. So uh, yeah, if you Google my name, uh, the work will come up. Uh, my book sold on Amazon. Uh, it's very, very reasonably priced. And uh, uh, you can uh, also go to LukeShan.com. Um, you'll find just some uh, links there. Um, find my uh, name on the Duquesne faculty webpage and, uh, and see some stuff there. Um, so, uh, yeah, you're welcome to reach out to me um, and uh, discuss Robert Nisbet or Russell Kirk or uh, uh, pitch a uh, NSA or book review to the bookman. Yeah, that's great. And by the way, t- the, the way uh, Luke spells his last name is S-H-E-A. That's right. H-A-N. That's usually the thing I'm sure people leave out. So if you're going to find <laughs> yes. you online, you got to include that extra A. That's right. Uh, the, 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 the S-H-E-A-H-A-N. It's something like 20% of Sheehan's. <laughs> well, then it kind of narrows it down and they'll find you. That's right. <laughs> hey, well, thanks a lot again, Luke. And uh, as we wrap up, uh, we want to thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. Uh, we appreciate your support. Lots of folks give money to us on an ongoing basis. Lots of folks recommend us to other people. The show continues to grow, and we're astonished by the fact that we talk about these esoteric matters and people are interested and and tune in. But anyway, uh, enough for now. Uh, Bye-bye. Bye now.